Our scripture text this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I won't ask. I won't test the Lord. Then Isaiah said, listen, house of David, it is... Isn't it enough for you to, tire, to be tiresome for people that you are also tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. He will eat butter and honey and learn to reject evil and choose good. Before the boy learns to reject evil and choose good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our text today requires some context and some background. Uh, we, we come kind of joining Isaiah in the midst of a conversation that he is having with God, uh, that God is having with King Ahaz. So, so here's the context in Israel at this particular moment in its history. What has happened is Assyria is sort of the big power on the scene. Assyria to the north and to the east of, of Israel is, it's the global juggernaut. It's the, it's the superpower in that particular region at that particular time. Uh, Assyria was basically conquering anyone they wanted, anytime they wanted, with little to no resistance from the people they're conquering. They were a big power and a big fear. Most of the people and nations in that region were in some way beholden to Assyria, either as vassal states or paying tribute to keep them protected, right? The protection racket. But not everyone was happy with this arrangement, right? In, in that particular area, there were people who were happy. They're perfectly happy to live under the rule of Assyria and other people that were not happy. Now, probably likely speaking, most people who weren't Assyrians were unhappy about being tribute slave vassals to that particular kingdom. But in our particular text, the context of what's going on is two kingdoms, uh, Ephraim, as described here, also known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and Syria are getting together and they're starting to plan a little revolution, right? They don't, they don't want to be beholden to Assyria. Assyria is the superpower. They know that alone they cannot defeat Assyria. And so they start talking, well, if we band together and if enough of us band together, we can sort of overthrow Assyria and everything will be good again, right? We'll be free. We'll be free from this yoke. We won't have to pay taxes, all that kind of stuff that's going on. But the Northern kingdom of Israel... And Syria know that even together they don't have enough power to overthrow the kingdom of Assyria. They're strong. They're mighty. They're the superpower. They have all the tanks and the chariots and everything. Just those two kingdoms would be wiped out. And so they're talking and they say, well, maybe if we get the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, to join us, we might be strong enough. Maybe the three of us united will be strong enough to overthrow Assyria. Assyria. And so these two kingdoms, they, 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 come to, they come to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and they ask to make an alliance. 
They basically say, join us. We, it, it would be advantageous for us to all gather together and, and together we might just be strong enough to, to take on Assyria. We might be strong enough to kind of overthrow this, this wicked and, and strong power. We might be strong enough to, to withstand the onslaught of that particular kingdom. But for one reason or another, Ahaz refuses. Right, they come broken this deal. We'd like to make an alliance with you. We want to. We want to get together, and 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 we think you're the key, right? He says, "No, I'm not going to do that." Now, in Isaiah chapter seven, we're not told why Ahaz really doesn't want to join them, right? Perhaps he is a wise and good king and knows that he doesn't want to put his people in that kind of danger, right? Perhaps he's a realist and says, even if we all band together, it's not going to change anything. If we band together, we're still not powerful enough. Assyria is, is it. It is the thing. It, they'll, they'll wipe us off the map. It's probably because for one reason or another, he's scared. I think we can assume based on context and based on what we lead later, it's not because he has any sort of holy fear of God or believes that God will rescue them. Um, I want to give credit where credit due, but I don't think we can credit that to Ahaz. Just just based on where things are going and what he says. But essentially he says, no, I'm not going to join you. Well, here's the problem. These two kingdoms, they, they know that unless they get Judah involved, unless they get the southern kingdom involved in this, they have no chance. And now they're plotting sedition against Assyria, so now they're a target as well. And so what they do is, is the, the northern kingdom of Israel and, and its king and, and the, the king of Syria get together and they say, well, maybe if we go lay siege to Jerusalem, we can overthrow Ahaz, plant some guy that we know will support us, and then the three of us will band together, revolution, all sorts of things like that. And so now Ahaz has, has a couple problems. Assyria is still a big issue, but they're not the pressing one. Now, now the northern kingdom, Israel, and, and, Assyria, and Syria are getting together, and they're going to come, and they're going to try to overthrow Judah so that they can get Judah's armies on their side to overthrow Assyria. Are you confused yet? Global politics ain't simple, even in the ancient world. But the short version is... Two kingdoms saying, we want Judah to be a part. Judah says no. Now they're going to make war on Judah so that they can make war on Assyria. Okay, that's basically how it's going. Which puts Ahaz in a pickle. It's not just that Assyria is strong. It's these two countries are also strong. And nobody wants to go to war. And Ahaz knows that he cannot defend with his armies, with his people. He cannot defend the southern kingdom of Judah against, against Assyria or against the northern kingdom and Syria together. And so he's worried. And it's into that context as, as he and all of Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, are worried together about what's going to happen, about the, about the threats of, of, of war on multiple fronts. And, and they're worried. And, and the word of God comes to Isaiah and Isaiah goes to Ahaz, and essentially says, the thing that you're worried about won't happen. God has got your back, essentially. Right? These people are going to come against you, but they will not be able to make war on you. They will not be able to surround Jerusalem. They will not be able to overthrow you. Essentially, he says, you're going to be okay. But the last thing Isaiah says before our text to Ahaz is this. If you stand 
you will stand by faith or you will not stand at all. Essentially, Isaiah says, Ahaz, you need to trust in God for God will do this. God is trustworthy. God will accomplish that which God has said. And God has said this, that things are going to be okay. And then we get to our text today. So here we are again, this sort of meeting of, of Isaiah. Isaiah has said, things are going to be okay. Uh, God's got this. God's got your back. Um, God will not let the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria come together and overthrow you. It's going to be all right. And then Isaiah, in fact, the Lord comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, I know this is probably scary for you. So here's what I want you to do. Ask a sign of me. There's not many times in scriptures where God comes to someone and says, test me. Very few places. Now, God, God at times have given signs to the people of Israel to say that God is faithful without them asking. There are times when people have asked for a sign and God has said, nah, don't put the Lord your God at the test. But in this particular instance, God is so concerned and wants to make sure that Ahaz understand that God is there, that God will get this, that Ahaz doesn't have to do anything other than trust in the providential care of Yahweh God. And so Yahweh says, Isaiah, ask a sign of me. If you want to know things are going to be okay, if you want to know that I'm trustworthy, Ask me to do something and I will do it. No matter what, be it as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. Ask and I will do this. It is quite the honor that Ahaz is given. Because God doesn't do this very often. Doesn't say, test me. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. Now the sign is something, I don't know what kind of sign God was thinking. It doesn't really say, but... But essentially God's saying, okay, this is going to happen and I'll do something else to prove it, to prove that I'm powerful enough to do it. And so we might expect Ahaz to, you know, I don't know, say, make this tree get up and fly around and then plant itself back down. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what kind of things uh, the ancient people thought about for signs, right? We know there were some golden fleece, there's fleeces at some point that somebody put out. Um, there are other things that, that people did and... But I don't know, maybe, you know, God make the sun stop. I, I don't know. I'm not sure what, what was in Ahaz's mind or in God's mind or in Isaiah's mind for that matter. But what's interesting is that Ahaz says, no. Now, we're not told his tone of voice when he says this, but in my mind, and it is my mind, so you can take it or leave it, but, but he's got this sort of, this fake piety that sometimes we put on when, when, when we're trying to be holy, even though we're a little disingenuous. I don't know if you're ever like that. Sometimes it happens to me. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. Far be it for me to put the Lord my God to the test. <laughs> In my mind, there's a false piety here. Now, it's grounded in some, some pretty good textual evidence, right? There is scripture that says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But things are different when God asks. It's not, it's not a trick question, right? God's not trying to entrap Ahaz into doing something, right? If God asks, then Ahaz is free to do it. But Ahaz, he refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. I, I'm not going to put God to the test because that's a dangerous place to be. 
At least this is what he says to Yahweh, and this is what he says to Isaiah. And we know this isn't a test from God because God does not go, well done, good and faithful servant. You have answered well. I was just testing you to see if you actually believe me. Ahaz is met with an eye roll. I mean, that's really what happens, right? Ahaz says, no, I won't put the Lord my God to the test. And in my mind, Isaiah's sitting there doing this. And God's up in heaven doing this. Seriously. Like just rolling his eyes going, you've got to be kidding me. And so Isaiah says, isn't it enough that you weary mortals and people around you? Isn't it enough that you're annoying to the people around you? You got to do it to God as well. (laughs) If a prophet says that to you, (laughs) yeah, it's a tough place to be. But God, God says to Ahaz, seriously, this is big stuff. You are in grave danger and I am going to get you out of that danger and you don't want any sort of proof. And you, you, I'm telling you to test me and you, you're not going to. God is a better judge of people's character than I am. And so I'm going to say it's pretty certain that, that Ahaz's answer of, oh, I won't put the Lord my God to the test. I might view that as silly and false piety. But the way that God responds would indicate that God sees it as such as well. That whatever Ahaz's motivations for not wanting God to give him a sign, God isn't buying it. God knows his heart. And God says, seriously? That's the answer you're going to give me? Ahaz, you've got to be kidding me. But then God says something else. He says, Ahaz, you won't ask for a sign, but I'm going to give you for one anyway. This is extraordinary, by the way, right? God doesn't normally like to be tested. Like God's kind of like, trust me. That's God's MO. God says, look at my, my work in the past, right? And I think my work speaks for itself, right? I've done these things. Look at what I do with Israel and all these ways in which I've rescued people. So when I say I'm going to rescue, I will. That's normally how God works. But here God says, if you don't believe me, or if you need some signs, I'll give you proof. And Ahaz says, no. And instead of just throwing up his hands in a huff and walking away and saying, whatever, God's not willing to do that. God's like, you don't want a sign. You're not asking for a sign. I'm going to give you one anyway. I want to show you that I am who I say I am. I want to show you that I am to be trusted and that you can trust me what I say. And so he says, look, the young woman will conceive and bear a son and she will call him Emmanuel. Now, most of us who have been around the church for a while are very familiar with this language. It, it might've struck you interesting that, that the, the scripture said young woman and not virgin. Matthew translates it as virgin. Isaiah is a little more ambiguous, actually. The word that is used in in this text can mean either, well, is usually referred to as a woman of marriageable age, right? Assumed virginity, but not explicit. There is another explicit Hebrew word for that term. A young woman will conceive and bear a son. It's important for us to note 
that in this particular passage of scripture, and in really when we read things that we term as prophecy in general, we ought to realize that it had meaning for the people who originally read it. That is to say, there was meaning and ostensibly fulfillment of this particular sign in the lifetime of Ahaz, because that's what's going on. God is not talking to people 2,000 years later, not explicitly right here. In fact, God is bringing this message to Ahaz through Isaiah at a certain time and in a certain place saying, look, the language suggests that this person, this young woman, perhaps a virgin, is actually present. That, that either Isaiah or Ahaz or both knew who this person was and perhaps she was present when they were having this conversation. I might say, look, as a rhetorical device, or I might say, look. The way we understand this and the way scholars understand and the way it's written is to say, look. As if Isaiah is pointing at someone very specific at that time. Now, I'll get into this later, but this does not negate having meaning for Jesus and finding fulfillment in Jesus. I'm just not there yet. But it had fulfillment in its original time. Essentially, Isaiah says, look, imagine you're headed pointing to somebody. Look, the young woman will conceive and she will bear a son. And she will call him Emmanuel. Now, it's not translated directly here, but we know that that means God is with us or God is in our midst. Now, who is this young lady? Well, theories abound about who this young lady might be. Uh, some would actually say that the young, the young woman is actually uh, Ahaz's wife and that the child to be born is actually his child and that that is the sign that Isaiah is pointing to. Uh, some would say it's actually Isaiah's wife and Isaiah's son who is to be called Emmanuel. Isaiah's family is used elsewhere in, in Isaiah as sort of God's sign acts in history. Ultimately, we don't know for sure. Now, presumably, it was happening and happened because we have this preserved many, many years later up into Jesus Christ. But the point is not to identify the person or even name the child for that matter. But for Isaiah to say and point to something, look, she will conceive, she will bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. The presence of that child in our midst will let you know that God is with us, right? Fulfillment of that, that God will rescue you, God will get you out of this, that, that the, the, the kingdoms that you fear, you need not fear because God will deliver you. That's really what's going on immediately at least in the text. The presence of this child, Isaiah is not here at least specifically pointing to many thousands of years in the future or hundreds of years in the future, but saying here, now God is working to deliver you. And this is a sign that God is among you. For before that child learns to distinguish even evil and good. Now, what age is that? I don't know. I've heard up to 30. I don't know. That's the sort of legal age of, like, I don't know, like manhood. Or th 13, which is when you become a son of the Torah, right? Your bar mitzvah, 
a son of the commandments, or age three, at which it was commonly understood somebody could understand the word no. It's all over the map. We don't really know. Well, let's just for the sake of argument saying anywhere up from three years to 30 years, right? Within that time period, Isaiah says, the thing that you have feared will no longer be a source of fear. Before the child is able to distinguish evil and good, he will eat curds and honey. Butter and honey is what the, the, this, our translation that we read today, but it's curds and honey, right? Again, three years old, maybe that's when a child is weaned. And the curds and honey might have other meaning, but probably meaning that those are rich foods, right? Signifying abundance, right? A land flowing with milk and honey, you might recognize those words. And and so Isaiah is saying, this is all going to happen and it's going to happen not long in the future, not, not sometime beyond your understanding, but the sign will happen for you to witness. And when the sign occurs, you know that it won't be very long until those lands, Syria and the Northern Kingdom will be abandoned. There'll be no threat whatsoever. We actually know that both of those kingdoms were destroyed by the Assyrian Empire not too long after this. The Northern Kingdom of Judah was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. They were no longer a threat, not too long after these words that Isaiah speaks. And so Isaiah says, such times will not be known among you since Ephraim departed Judah. Ephraim departed Judah under the reign of Rehoboam, who was Solomon, or Jeroboam, excuse me, who was Solomon's son. No, it is Rehoboam. I'm sorry if, I, if my, my time frames are wrong. There's lots of Rehob, anyway. Solomon's son. So if you're not familiar with the story, let me just recap it for you. Under Solomon, things were wonderful in Israel, right? There was a united kingdom. They were growing. Everyone was paying tribute. There was money. Solomon was wise. Solomon went off the deep end, right? 300 wise, 700 concubines. Things were a little crazy. But things were so crazy and moving so fast that he basically conscripted labor from throughout Israel to make sure all the building projects got done, right? And so when his son came on the scene, the advisor said, hey, we built a lot of stuff. It's great. Looks good. But could you ease up a little bit on us? And Solomon said, so son said, no, I will not do that. My father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. And so the northern tribes, all but two of them said, we're out. And there was a divided kingdom in Israel, right? Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Okay, that's the, that's the short version. And so what, what Isaiah says here is that you will rejoice. There'll be, there'll be times not known since you two kingdoms split up. Those are the heydays of Israel. Those were when things were the best, when people were, were excited, when the king was rich, fat, and happy. That's what Isaiah says. He says it's going to be a time unlike any, anybody here has known. But, but Isaiah says something weird. For just at the end, he says, it's going to be unlike anything you've known since the kingdoms were divided. And then there's sort of like, it's, it's almost like he shouts or just has a fit. And he says, the king of Babylon or the king of Assyria. And that's it, right? End of sentence. Such times will, will be like you haven't known since the kingdoms divided from one another, the king of Assyria. And that's it. It's a weird interjection. 
and we're not sure what it means. And so we're left wondering, is this good news or bad news? Is all that we have heard good news or bad news? Is Emmanuel, God with us, good news or bad news for the people of Israel? Well, let me just say this. God in our midst can be both, depending on where you stand in relation to God. God with us is a wonderful thing when we need God to be with us, when we need the presence of God, when we are crying out for the presence of God. Hearing God is with us is such good news. God is in your midst. God has not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. All of those things, right? It is great news. What happens if you're rebelling against God, though? Is God is near you good news? Probably not. Here's why I think this, at least for Ahaz, was not good news. You see, shortly before all of this is happening, when Ahaz knows that there are kingdoms who are coming to to conquer him so that they can put a puppet on the throne and then conquer Assyria, Ahaz has sent a little letter, has communicated with the king of Assyria. And that letter is basically this, help. Ahaz has seen the danger. He sees the storm coming. But instead of doing what what Isaiah encouraged him to do, trust. Either you will stand in faith or you will not stand at all, are Isaiah's words. Instead of taking those words to heart and standing in faith, the Lord is faithful and he will do this. Ahaz sends a letter and says to his enemy, help. There's no free help when it comes to kingdom versus kingdom. Everything has a string attached. So in order to seek deliverance from an immediate threat, that is Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahaz appeals to the bigger threat, but the bully, right? The the little bullies are on his back. And so he's saying, well, if I ask the big bully, he'll take care of the little bullies for me. But what Ahaz ends up doing is giving a significant portion of money and even the beautiful gold, silver articles of the temple to the king of Assyria as tribute and becomes a vassal state. So what Ahaz has done is said, I'm not going to go to God. I've already gone to the king of Assyria. He's already made his deal with the devil, so to speak. So if you've made your deal with the devil, is God is with you and in your midst and near you. Good news. For the king of Israel at this particular point, it's not good news at all. And as you would see if you continued to read chapter 7, it's not good news for the people of Israel either, at least not in the short term. Now, if you were here last week and heard Isaiah 35, you see that there is good news. 
God is going to do such things that the people had never seen before. The desert will burst into bloom. The people will find a highway back to the presence of the Lord, their God, but it's going to be rough in the, in the interim time. But what is true and what did not change in the midst of all of this, despite Ahaz's rebellion, is the young woman will bear a child and you will call him Emmanuel. Amidst all of this, God has said, I will not abandon. I will not completely let everything go astray. I will be with you and I will be among you. And that is a theme that is going on throughout Isaiah and all the prophets. Even as the people go into exile, the theme that God is still present, that God is still with you, even in these times, never leaves. God says, I love you enough to give you a sign that you didn't ask for. And though the results of your making an alliance with this particular kingdom is going to be bad, and it is bad for the kingdom of Judah. You see, what happens is things get bad enough as a vassal state to Assyria and then ultimately Babylon that a later king now goes to Egypt and says, help us. Instead of relying on God, goes to Egypt Ultimately, Babylon overthrows the kingdom of Judah and they're taken into exile. But even in the midst, even if we like read the prophet Ezekiel, we see that the presence of God is still with the people, is still speaking with the people and still says God is faithful. Even in the midst of all of this, God is faithful. Emmanuel is among you. Fast forward to many years later, several hundred years, 800 years or so later. We hear about God speaking to another person. This time it's a young woman, from what we read in the text, a virgin, who is betrothed to be married, but not yet gone through the formalities. And God says to that person, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you. The power of the most high will overshadow you. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And he will save his people. As Matthew, that was in Luke, as Matthew tells that story, the command is given, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now to the people in Jesus' day, that is good news and bad news, right? Those walking in darkness, the light is wonderful and good and glorious. Those who like the darkness, light is rough. But God says, remember what I told Isaiah so long ago. Remember that, that, that thing from your history that happened 800 years in the past. He says, guess what? God is still that faithful God. And those words that God is with you, I'm going to use them again. And this time it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a little bit different because as we read in the scriptures that we read in John, well, the, the word becomes flesh and makes its dwelling among us. This word that was with God in the beginning, this word that is God makes its dwelling among us. The word becomes flesh, pitches a tent, moves into the neighborhood. What wonderful news. For God is with us. 
Isaiah has a real-time fulfillment. But the resonance of that prophecy comes throughout history to be repeated again in the first century at the birth of Jesus. And we hear it again as a reminder that God is with us, that God has not abandoned God's people, that God has not abandoned God's creation. That, that despite our sometimes obstinate nature, God says, I know you didn't ask for a sign, but I'm going to give you one. That God demonstrates God's love for us in this, that, that while we were yet sinners, the word becomes flesh. And while we were yet sinners, Christ dies for us. And says, rebellion and all. Your thick head and all. I've got a thick head. Your rebellion and all. Your sin and all. All that stuff. It's bad. But, but I'm going to make a way. And I'm going to prove to you that I am among you. And in Christ we have seen his glory. The glory of a father's only son. Full of grace and truth. In Christ, we see God saying, I'm going to go to such lengths to prove my love for you that I am willing to be put to death by you so that you might live. I'm going to conquer even death itself. And in so doing, make a way so that your sin may be forgiven and that you might know fully, finally, once and for all and for all of eternity that I am with you. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. It's a light in the darkness. And it comes through the unlikeliest of places. A baby born to a woman in nowhere Israel. Not in Jerusalem, not in the halls of kings, not in the palaces of the powerful, but in Bethlehem, in a stable. God comes to us and says, I am with you. And offers God's own self to us in Christ that we, as we believe in him, might know he was with us and might have life and have it to full, overflowing, abundantly, that we may be forgiven and that we might have life eternal. For me, this is the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for me, this is what it means in this Advent season to wait to wait until we, we, we can celebrate anew, but to wait until God brings this in its fullness and in its finalness when God brings his kingdom. Not to a place out there, for we pray your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. All because of Emmanuel, God who is with us.
All because we worship and adore one who literally is Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the word became flesh, God who is with us and who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. So it seems appropriate that we have sung of that love this morning. And it seems appropriate that we should sing of that love again. So the worship is going to come back up and we're going to sing this final song. To rejoice and to give thanks for the God who has gone to extraordinary lengths that we might know him and that we might have relationship with him. A God who has proved God's own self to us over and over and over again. It's a story that in some ways keeps repeating If we go from from Genesis all the way to Revelation and even past, as we think about our lives and the lives of those who have come before us, we see God showing up, God reminding us that I am with you. Just as God was with our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in whose lineage of faith we follow. Just as God was with the people of Israel in the advent of Jesus Christ. Just as God has been with those who who have worshipped his name ever since God is with us. And God desires to know us. And God merely asks that we come and trust in God's own faithfulness. That what God has done, God will do again. And that God will bring to pass that which God has promised.